0: Lord, thank you so much for this time together. Bless this class. And I pray everyone will do really well in the quiz today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Who needs uh, more time? None? Okay, switch with somebody nearby. Sorry, you know, uh, this is quiz number three, right? So we're, quiz number three on Adams chapter six and seven. we we're able to read the entire assignment? Hopefully you were, uh, but there's no extra points this time for that. Sorry. Um, number one, what is the thing to be avoided at all costs in preparing and preaching a message? Yeah. Is it finding the original purpose, imposing your own purpose, or finding cross-references to the passage? Definitely be imposing, which means placing your ideas on the text rather than letting the Bible speak for itself, letting God speak for himself through the the Bible. Um, Number two. When can the preacher be said to be speaking with authority? A, when the preacher speaks loudly and pounds the pulpit. B, when the preacher speaks eloquently and argues the point. C, when the preacher knows he is saying what the Holy Spirit said for the purposes of the Holy Spirit in saying it. Or D, when the preacher receives a message in a dream the night after he ate some greasy pizza. (laughs) Definitely C, definitely C. Is D from personal experience? Uh, No. Um... Number three, which of the following is not one of the three general purposes in preaching that would bring glory to God's name by building up his church? To inform, to convince, to intimidate, or to motivate? C, to intimidate. Four, true or false, it is not necessary to interact in informal settings with the people to whom you preach or teach. That is false. It is important to interact in informal settings. True or false? To present every person mature in Christ requires both public preaching and private counseling. True. True. Mark the number right. Out of 20, so it's five questions, you know, four points a question. And pass them to me. All right. Um, I printed out another worksheet for you guys. I realized after I did this that there is a error in the printing, so if you'd like a corrected one, I can do it. It's got a bookmark, um, man, you guys messed it. Sorry. So, but I'm gonna pass it out anyway. If you'd like a corrected version, I just realized that it had this. It just has a page number. I, I, I did a cross-reference link inside my Word document to correct the page number, and I forgot to update it, so it didn't update correctly, which is what happens sometimes. Um, basically it's just going to point you to the page of the um, document we're going to be talking about today on narrative, finishing up some of the stuff we talked about last time. So this is for those of you who are doing a story. This is only for those of you doing a story, but everyone should take one. You can have it in your your notebook. But if you're doing a narrative, this is a helpful worksheet for kind of uh, working through the narrative, okay? So just take one and pass it around and any extras I can take. Alright, um, take your uh, notebooks, and I think we were talking about um, the basic elements of historical narrative. We are here, um, and that is on, according to mine, page 37, but it might be give or take a little different because we've added a couple things since I printed out your, your papers. Any questions, by the way, on the quiz? Any questions on the reading? What is it? I was an extra page I gave you last time, you remember? There it is. Cadence, what is that? The 35. 35. 35 35 A, right? Because yeah. I added a page 35. Remember that? Yeah? And Christy, you didn't have that one, did you? Um, so, I'll tell you what I'll do. Let me hold on. Let me hide the actually I'll just leave the ink in there so Um, look on with your husband for right now and then what I'm going to do is I will just uh, print off print this off for you and you can pick it up off the printer really at the end of today okay One second. Okay, there we go. Um, all right. So I, I have this up because I thought it might be a little bit helpful to just follow along with you guys as you see, uh, as you see this stuff. This is your the same as what you have in front of you. Um, there's nothing, nothing different. I don't think. Let me just take off these. So we talked about when we talk uh, when we study. Um, Historical narrative. and We're going to preach on a historical narrative. There are several things that we talked about first. You need to, each narrative has one main plot. Uh, each plot determines, is determined um, the individual scenes and their arrangement. So each plot, this is page 35, um, is going to have distinct scenes, settings, characters, etc., and I want you to make, I had a couple notes here that I made. One is that chronological arrangements are normal. That means they're, they're normally that way and chronolo- chronologically from beginning to end, but not absolute. You have stories that are not strictly chronological in the Bible. I don't know if you realize that, but that is true. That they tell stories and sometimes they'll jump ahead or sometimes they'll rearrange things for emphasis. Okay, is not saying that it's incorrect. That's exactly how it's designed to be. It's just, and sometimes we tell stories that way too. Um, but, and they're not always clear where the markers are. Uh, for example, in, in, but in, in the uh, historical books, they're usually very clear about when things happen. They're talking about in the first year of the king of this, uh, when so and so was king of um, Syria and so and so was king of Egypt, this happened. And then the, the stories of the northern and southern kingdoms kind of alternate and go kind of in parallel tracks. But like the fourth chapter of Jonah, a lot of people assume that it's chronological. In my studies of it, I kind of think that it is not necessarily chronological. I think the fourth chapter of Jonah, where Jonah goes and sits outside the wall, and it just begins by saying that he was very angry with God. Um, or he has, you know, the plant come up and then the, the thing come up. There's a scene, and not to get into too many details, but there's a there's a scene where he, it ends with a question where God asks do I not have the right to be merciful to this city with many things, people who don't know the right hand from their left and much cattle? And that is what you're left with, and that's important. That's an important thematic thing for Jonah. But chronologically, it's possible that when Jonah's angry, Jonah is very wroth at God, he's very angry at God, that actually follows chronologically what happens at the end of the book. It's very possible. Okay, It's not necessarily... Um, uh, uh, if I'm wrong... It doesn't really matter. It's not the biggest deal in the world. It's not a doctrinal issue. But just saying, when you study narrative, when you study narrative, if you find things that are out of order sometimes, you're like, oh, that's kind of interesting. It happens in the book of Joshua. So I've been studying Joshua. They'll say, and they return to Gilgal. And then they fight for a long time, and then they return to Gilgal. And so there's this extrapolation. They say, well, after they did this, they returned to Gilgal. But hang on, let me tell you about what happened before they returned to Gilgal. And so there are things like this that happen. It does not mean that they returned to Gilgal, came back, fought the rest of the battle, then returned to Gilgal. Okay, so that happens. Um, but, so arrangements are intentional, always. The story is, is, is intentional in how it's arranged and how it is told. It's very, very important. Okay, Every scene has to have a background and that character is in action, whether physical or verbal. And uh, note here, all the details in a narrative are intentional. All the details are intentional. Okay, that's important. Every single time you see details in the scriptural text, they are intentional. Uh, there's very, very sparse details. And so when there's a detail, pay attention. Why is it there? What's it trying? I should say very rarely is there detail. That's just kind of superfluous. Uh, you know, it took a lot of effort to write today. We just type, or we write with our thumbs and it it means nothing to have lots and lots of words. I mean, I get texts from people that are this long and I'm like, oh my goodness. Yeah. Well, if you are writing a message in, in the Bible times, especially if you're writing biblical text, you're not wasting words. Um, so the process for uh, preaching narrative step one read for structure scenes and statements that means you're looking for transitions you're looking for uh, how the thing is set up and also for uh, statements meaning that sometimes um, a major theological statement is made analyze the plot analyze the scenes their components relate each scene to the plot develop proposition and story outline develop a sermon around the story we're not going to get into all that today this is just for a few of you who are doing sermons who are stories but uh, i think this is helpful for everybody questions when when studying historical narrative we got into this a little bit you're going to ask what is the setting for the story is there a historical setting here uh does the passage indicate a geographic setting how does this fit into the literary setting of this of the story so you're asking what's the setting of this the the story of um um, judah and tamar y'all know that story of judah and tamar and the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife are parallels. And they come one after the other. Okay? Judah and Tamar, what does Tamar have in her hand? His signet ring and his rod signifying who was who came to her. Joseph, what does he leave in Potiphar's robe? His robe signifying who came to her well, but he was righteous and Judah was not. Judah pursued. Joseph fled. Okay? There are intentional parallels between those two stories. You're reading through the book of Genesis and you're reading about Joseph and all of a sudden you come across Judah and Timur and you're like, whoa, that's kind of weird. That was out of nowhere. What does that have to do with any... That's what I used to think. What does that have to do with anything until you start seeing these connections? You're like, oh, the Genesis, Moses is setting, giving us a, a contrast Between the righteous Joseph and the unrighteous Judah. Okay? Um, So setting is important. Where does it exist? Not only geographically, but also in the story of the book. What's the point of view of the text? How's the story being told? We talked about this last time. A little bit of point of view where from someone's perspective, they only have so much information. So sometimes the text doesn't give you all the information until it's the right time. That happened in the story I preached on Sunday where they didn't know why the altar was built until they go and ask them about the altar being built. Uh, Joshua could have told us early on. He could have said, oh, yeah, and this was built for no bad reason, just to deflate the situation, but he doesn't do that. He builds up the tension, okay? There are examples of that in Daniel. There are examples of that. um, They have Joseph's story, probably. You're doing Joseph's story. And then Genesis 22, there's examples of that. We don't know what's going to happen with Isaac. We're in Abraham's point of view, right? But we also don't know it's a test. We're at God's point of view. Genesis 22.1 does not exist to Abraham. He doesn't know. All he knows, uh, Genesis 22.1, um, let's just pull it up. Um, he says, "It came to pass after these things, God tested Abraham. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know God's testing him. So, so, you see, point of view is important. Um, let's keep going. What are the stylistic devices that are employed uh, here? Chiastic patterns. We talked about chiasms, right? Special note of central point. Identify repeated words, images, or phrases like hand, day, go up, thus says the Lord, etc. You're going to identify these key words that repeat throughout the text. There's some important ones in Daniel. There's some important ones in Genesis 22. Okay. Uh, For example, in Genesis 22, I'm giving you some free stuff here. But Isaac, what does he do with the sticks? He carries them on his back and then up the mountain. And then once they get up the mountain... Abraham lays Isaac on the sticks. So the sticks are laid upon Isaac, and then Isaac is laid upon the sticks. There's this reversal image that's really beautiful. Um, And there's lots more. Identify wordplay double meanings. Bible's full of these. Get a study Bible and read through it. There's lots of, especially for for names. Names have double meanings all the time. Um, Book of Hosea, the the, the, the children born to Hosea. Lo-almi means not my people. Um, there's lots of examples in prophetic literature where people use names in an ironic way. Okay, Jonah, what's Jonah's name mean? It means dove, right? It means pe- like peace. Yet Jonah is bringing a message of what? Judgment. Ju- judgment, right? So it's ironic that Jonah's name is this when he comes. To Nineveh. Okay, so um, what are the main characters? Who are the supporting or side characters? What does the dialogue reveal about the motivations of characters in this story? Uh, Dialogue is going to tell you a lot about what the characters want, what they desire, and who they are. Okay, so pay attention to dialogue. Because keep going. Uh, What do the physical descriptions? Oh, hang on. An example of dialogue revealing. Can anybody give me an example of dialogue revealing motivation? The woman at the wall. Yep, that's a great example. I was thinking of another woman, Ruth, right? And Ruth 116, she says, you know, I will go after you. You know, I'll follow you. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you're going, I will go. Where you die, I will die. Okay, her dialogue reveals what's in her heart. Mary, my soul doth magnify the Lord. You yeah, all that. A lot of dialogue, okay. Um, what do the physical descriptions reveal about a characters in the story? Um... Genesis thirty nine six Joseph's appearance as han- as handsome is important when Potiphar's wife approaches him. OK, uh, David's appearance as a ruddy young man uh, is important. All, all the physical descri- uh, Saul's description of being tall is important because if he weren't tall, he would have never been picked because he's an idiot. Saul is an idiot. He is incompetent. Read the story and look at the It's all there. Saul can't find his own donkeys. Like he's a, he is complete buffoon. He is a clown. OK, that's the picture of Saul. Yet he's still given a, as king because he's head and shoulders above the rest. Literally speaking. What do the behaviors or actions reveal about the characters in the story? I just said contrast Judah and Tamar with Joseph and Potiphar's wife um, and how their behaviors show their character. Saul and his behavior, David and his character. Okay, we have people. Uh, Daniel is a great example of that. Who else we have, Je- we have? Abraham and his faith. Who else is doing a story? I forget. Maybe one more. Daniel, Daniel, Joseph, and Abraham. Is that it? And no. Okay. So what? What is the structure of the plot? We're going to go through this quickly because I know it's only a few of you are doing stories, but this is important I think for everybody to know. Um, is it a tragic plot? where the good character becomes disgraced. So a fall from grace, tragic plot. Um, This tragic plot is the one where the protagonist, usually a good character at first, begins an exalted honorable position, but by way of some wrong decision ends up in disgrace and loss. Usually his great mistake is due to some serious character flaw or weakness and finally catches up to him and ruins him. So what we see is in Samson, especially Uzziah the king, you see the uh, fall And then you identify in your sermon, what is the character flaw that leads to the fall and how can we avoid seeing that flaw in our own hearts? People make jokes about, you know, classic plays of Shakespeare, you know, whatever, and tragedies. Oh, they're so stupid. Everyone dies at the end. Well, the whole point is that, yes, everyone dies at the end. What's the character flaw that leads these people to that place? And when you identify that character flaw, there's some sort of morality that's supposed to be instructed. Now, it's not always good morality, but you get the point. Um, Is it a comic plot? Comedy is not um, uh, rom-coms. We're not talking about uh, uh, slapstick. Um, Comedy, a comic plot just means that it it begins in prosperity, it ends in tragedy, and ends, I'm I'm sorry, goes through tragedy, ends in prosperity. So it begins in prosperity, tragedy, prosperity. Okay? So you start good, you go through hardship, you end up good. Job, yeah. And uh, a couple more here. Um, Joseph, Ruth, a couple more. Ruth, they begin with prosperity. Bethlehem, house of bread. They leave. They go to Moab. They go there. They, she marries a man named Sickly. Here's another. Or how would you like to be naming, named to a guy named Sickly? <laughs> Yet, or she or her, her, her sister name or Orp- 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 name named uh, Sickly, or, or Mahal and Kilion means Sickly and Weak. Isn't that great? Uh, and they are sickly and weak. They have no sons, no, no daughters. After 10 years, they're infertile. You know, they go through this terrible valley. They come out, and they're prosperous. Usually, it's like this. Normally, it's not just a U-shaped. Um, so it's not just that, you know, bad. Uh, I should say good, bad, good. This is also called a three-act structure, right? Uh, where the lowest point is the, the end of your second act uh if you're into that kind of thing but um actually it's more like this where you end up in a better place than where you started okay so it's it's good bad great that's a comic plot okay so ruth is a great example of that she begins with no children she ends with children in the line of messiah okay um heroic a heroic plot centers on the virtues of a protagonist like daniel gideon or esther um and uh, those, are, those are heroic plots. You're supposed to emulate those characteristics. Is it a punitive plot, which features an unsympathetic character who receives a justice for his wickedness and behavior? Think of Haman. You think of Jezebel, Ahab, Absalom. Absalom all of these people who are wicked, and their wickedness comes back to get them. It's basically straight down. Uh, it's a punitive plot. So you're going to ask yourself, what's the central conflict? Does the story present... Um, a protagonist and antagonist, or just a main character or protagonist. What are the stakes for failure? It's a good question to ask yourself. How does each scene relate to the overall plot? So normally you've got little scenes within the plot that lead you to the main point. Uh, A lot of times you'll draw a conflict plot like this, you know, where it's like, There's a building, and in fact, in Abraham's story, literally going up the mountain is like going up the mountain of plot, where it gets more and more uh, intense until this moment at the peak when he's getting ready to kill his son. Is it going to kill him? What's going to happen? And intervention, right? His faith is demonstrated. So what is the crisis point? You're going to ask yourself that. How is the conflict resolved? Is it completely or incompletely resolved? Is the conflict resolved through dramatic reversal, which is a very biblical way of doing conflict resolution, which means the last become great and the great become last. Mordecai and Haman. Okay. Haman gets hung on the, on the gallows that he built for Mordecai. What are the gallows? I'll tell you what they are. It's a big stick in the ground. You get impaled on. Okay. It's not something you hang from and swing. This is gross stuff. And he, he, prepares these huge gallows for his enemy and God reverses. Okay. That's called dramatic reversal or ironic reversal even. So ask yourself, where does God fit in this story? It's very, very important to ask yourself that question. Any questions about what we just went over? I know I kind of blew through that really fast, but have this, take a look at it later. If you ever are studying Bible stories, um, people have this idea that Bible stories are for kids uh, and I can't tell you. Just go back as an adult, as a teenager, and and read them with fresh eyes. Read them carefully. You'll find all kinds of things that you're like, wow! I had no idea that was there. Like the Judah and Tamar thing. Uh, it, it will it will come alive to you, and it'll be much much more fun. It's much more fun to teach things when they've come alive to you, and when you when you've been in it and you're like, I have found stuff. Let me show you what I found. It's fun. I have uh, my favorite things I, uh, I, I teach is on the book of Jonah I have to talk about the the parallels and the, uh, the, the the couplets and all the stuff and the beauty of the book of Jonah. It's just amazing when you think about all. I'll just give you one example of all the things that obey God in Jonah. Right? God, Jonah is the one thing who did one person who disobeys God. Okay. He's the prophet of God. And what does he do? He disobeys the Lord, but who obeys him? Well, the storm obeys God. God sends a storm. God sent a Jonah, but he didn't go. God sends a storm. God sends a fish. God has these sailors, these mariners who are idol worshipers who worship him. Uh, God uh, sends a worm to, and he sends a gourd and Nineveh repents. Uh, Everything obeys God except his prophet. And it's just like, wow, what, what in the world? There's, there's this gigantic fish and a tiny worm. You know, God hurls a storm, is what it says. And then they hurl Jonah out of the boat. I mean, it's like there are all these, these ideas. It's beautiful. And when you've been in the text, you've been studying it, and all of a sudden you start to see this stuff. It's super fun to teach it. So, so uh, get in the stories. Don't assume that they're for kids. They are. Well, they are. But uh, they're also for uh, everyone else. Okay, why do we do this? Is it just for for fun? Do we do we do we do these things because they're just enjoyable? Because they are to find this stuff. Why do we do these kinds of questions? Make sure that you're understanding the text you're reading. Okay. What 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 stage are we in? Yes. Before we get to Purpose, per se. We're in the very, very beginnings of our preparation. What? Observation. observation. So, if we have our three points, we have our observation. I'm going to have to erase some of this. Anybody everybody got this down? I'm just, I'm just joking. This is not very deep stuff. Um, so, observation. Being our first, our first step along the way, we start with observation, and we're going to move to interpretation. Right? But your observation point is, what does it say? Like what? You're asking a simple question. What does it say? Before you get to what does it mean? Okay? You've got to ask yourself, what does the text actually say? There are a lot of things that people assume. Um, I remember growing up, I watched a, a special... Series 1 year uh biblical series don't be careful when you watch specials on TV about the Bible. Why? Yeah. And I remember there was a story about it had a, like a dramatic reenactment of Moses and Moses kills the the Egyptian slave master, slave master. And then he says, you know, bending in the in the sand, he says, I meant not to kill him. And for the longest time, I just assume that Moses accidentally killed this Egyptian slave master. But the Bible tells us that he looked to the, to the left and to the right to make sure nobody was watching. Then he slew him. So, you have to be careful. Sometimes we have pre- preconceived ideas about what happens or what the Bible's saying. And we have to read carefully. Because only as much as we are being obedient to God and what God said, do we have any authority whatsoever. We've already established that. So if you're going off what you remember from a TV series, it's not, you know, Charlton Heston and uh, the Ten Commandments, which actually, full disclosure, I've never actually sat through the whole thing. Um, But that's fine. But what does the Bible say? So what does it say? That's so essential. We've got to get to what does it say. So let's go talk a little bit. Any questions before we get into block diagramming? We're going to talk more to you guys who are doing Ephesians and... um, what else? First John, John 3. What's that? Romans and, Romans and Philippians, yes. I would say, Ron, you're doing John 3, right? Yes. I would say you would qualify. This is more like a, a narrative as well. It's, a, it's similar in that, right? Okay, so let's talk about block diagramming. Just go back one page, uh, if you would, um, to block diagramming. I have a few instructions for you uh, here. Whoops. Let's see if it, what happened? It disappeared on me. Let's see if it comes back. Okay. I'm going to show you, okay, these are my notes for Sunday, and, and this is not, let me make it so it's not dark. Hang on a second. How do I do that? There we go. Um, Okay, so this is, I do my block diagramming in an app called OneNote. It's just a Microsoft app, it's free. Um, You could do it anywhere. But I like this because I also have an iPad and I can write, see I wrote, I write a bunch of stuff. And this is um, my notes for Sunday. And I'm trying to figure, I've got three sections. Um, And this is actually block diagramming pretty well because it's a sermon. From Joshua. Now let me show you. Let's just let's just go from scratch here, and let's block diagram somebody's passage. Um, who's doing Philippians? Okay, Philippians and Philippians. What do we have? What is your text again, Philippians? One nineteen through thirty. One nineteen through thirty, and then you are Philippians two, 2 1, through one through thirteen. Maybe. Thirteen, yeah, something like that. Okay, so what we're going to do is what you end up. Uh, Philippians 1, 19 through thirty. Oops, ah, I'm in Hebrew Bible. Hang on one second. There we go. It's like I can't find the book of Philippians. Um, so what you can do is, now I have a Bible app, Bible program, that's called Accordance. You don't have to have Accordance. You can go online. You can go to places like BibleGateway.com or you can go to Blue Letter Bible. And in these... In these um, say you have Philippians 1, and it'll give it to you. Here's King James, but let's say you want to use a different translation. Uh, I'm not exactly sure how to... I think you change it here. Let's say you use ESV, Philippians 1, and there it is. Okay, so you could do that, and you can copy and copy and paste. I like Bible Gateway because you can do big passages like this, and you don't have to have the Bible. You can just... You can just copy and paste, you see that? Mm-hmm. So you just highlight it, right click, copy, and then paste into, well I know some of you like using paper, that's great. But let me show you why, um, why I'm gonna use a word processor here. And I'm not using Word, I'm gonna copy this. Um, I could use Word, that's maybe a little easier to show. So let me do it this way. Okay, so there's Philippians 1, 19 through 30. And when you do block diagramming, what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this. I'm going to show you how to do it, OK? And then the benefits of it. So um, notice it says, follow these steps when you block diagram your passage. Copy the entire passage into a word processor like Google Docs, Microsoft Word. You will find working with the digital text much simpler than try- typing or writing by hand. But you know what? If you don't want to use a computer, you don't have to. It's fine. It's just You'll have to probably rewrite a couple times. Or you can, or you can write, you can write it in strips of paper, and you can you can actually sort it and tape it or glue it. You can do it by hand, whatever. I'm a big fan of working by hand. I don't always do digital stuff. I write a lot by hand because I find it actually you learn better that way. But whatever, different, different topic. So let's isolate each sentence. Separate these sentences with hard breaks. So let's look at this. Everybody, help me out here. Can you see this? Yeah. Okay. Uh, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I may be ashamed Okay, where's the first sentence? Yeah, here, right? So we're going to do a hard break. That just means enter. For you guys, okay. Where's the next sentence? After gain. After gain, okay. Where's another one? Here, right? Here. Here, is it too small? Make it a little bigger? Let's do 16. Um, Here, right? I think I already had a break there, yeah. Uh, Here? That's about it, right? Okay. Now, this is New King James, so it's going to be a little bit longer sentences than maybe NIV or ESV or New American, well, not the same as New American Standard, okay? Um, so then what we're going to do is we are going to actually, I'm going to, I'm going to make this layout a landscape, and there's a reason I do it that way. I'll show you in a second. Because um, we need to now determine which clauses are independent within a sentence and which clauses are dependent within a sentence. Do you know what a clause is? What's a clause? What? Oh, uh, English class. Yeah, yeah. A clause is just a, is just a phrase. There's no way of saying a phrase. So it's, a, it's just a few words together that have some sort of meaning. So like, world is not a clause, but in the world is a clause, because it means something. It's not a complete sentence, but those clauses together can create a complete sentence. Not to be overly if some of this is going past you or whatever it's fine, no big deal. Just use your gut. And a lot of that, a lot of times you'll um, still come out with basically the right idea. So what we're looking at is for ideas like complete thoughts, or not totally complete thoughts, but but either dependent or independent clauses. So let's break this down a little bit. We may not be able to do the whole thing. in fact, why don't we make it a little easy on ourselves and start on? Verse 27. Okay. Hey, Donna, how are you? I have a notebook for you right here. Could you pass that to Donna? We're talking about block diagramming. What page is that on? 35? 33. 33. 33. So, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one, spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. it's okay, a long... It's not even done with the sentence yet. So, where do you break... Here, where's the first idea that we can we can section off? Can I make it even bigger? Oh sure. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let's put a break there. Okay, that makes sense. So that in fact, let me just go back. This is I'll, I'll show the um, I'll make it this way again so we can make it just so we can make it bigger for you guys. Oops, sorry. Here we go. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear... Oh, that looks like it's an idea. So whether I come and see you or I'm absent, break. I may hear of your affairs, break. That you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. It looks like that's a list. That you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind. That you stand fast, one spirit, with one mind, striving together For the faith of the gospel. Probably something like that. And not in any way terrified by your adversaries. Which is to them a proof of perdition. But to you of salvation. And that from God. Are you getting the idea of what I'm doing? I'm kind of breaking it down into units of thought. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ. For you has been granted on behalf of Christ. Not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Which you could break that out, but we're going to leave it as one for right now. Okay, now here comes, as we've determined, now we're going to say, okay, which of these are dependent and independent? What I mean by independent is that it could stand on its own. It isn't, it isn't relative to anything else. In, dependent clauses mean that they... It says here, include participial and infinitive phrases, especially phrases acting like adverbs. Dependent clauses should be placed under the clause they modify. Meaning that, and I think it's easier just to see it in action. So let only, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Why? So that. Okay? And when I do this, what I do is I'll sometimes put this in the text, and I'll just make it a different color. Like a gray. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, okay, that's actually two things, isn't it? So that one, whether I come and see you or I'm absent. Okay. So I might say option one, option two, I may hear of your affairs. Now here, the way I like to do it is I like to read it like this. Only let your conduct be worthy gospel of Christ so that I may hear of your affairs. That's really what he's saying. And this, is kind of the condition upon hearing the affairs. So in that case, I'll do it an extra time so that I see this connection here, so that I may hear of your affairs. Whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs. This just continues. Um, the result. Yeah, it's more, Yes, yeah, so, uh, I think it's more of a purpose than the result, right? Let it be worthy for the purpose that I may hear of your affairs is not, not a, a result and purpose can be interchangeable sometimes, but I'm going to say purpose this time. That's an adverbial, by the way, in case you are curious. Um, am I here of your affairs? What am I hearing? So, level one. so this is the object, the, it's an object of, or I should say, um, describing affairs. I know, I know this can be a little bit, little bit tedious, so just hang, hang with me. And this is what I'll do. I'll put an underline. So what is affairs? What am I hearing? That you stand fast in one spirit. You stand fast with one mind. So maybe we should do it like this. You stand fast in one spirit. You stand fast with one mind. You stand fast striving together for the faith of the gospel. You stand fast. Uh, This is probably not standing fast. This is probably... It's probably a second thing. Not in any way terrified by your adversaries. I mean, this is all... We're doing this to try to understand what it's saying. There's not necessarily an absolute right or absolute wrong sometimes with these things. Now, there can be wrong. You can do it the wrong way. But I'm saying, generally speaking, we're, we're working to try to understand what it's saying. Not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them. Okay. Well, whoa, whoa, what is this? What is to them? Who's that? Um, yeah. Yes. So what you can do is you can say, I'm going to make this guy blue. I'm going to make this guy blue. So they're connected adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition. But to you of salvation. Okay. Contrast here. Perdition and salvation are contrasted. Perdition is judgment. Salvation is salvation, right? So, what's this? And that from God. What is that talking about? Okay, yeah. So, what are we going to do with salvation? Well, the salvation and that salvation is probably salvation from God. Most likely. Uh, The proof of perdition. That could be perdition could be from God, too. Yeah, sure. For to you it has to be granted on behalf. Okay, whoa. Um... Where does this go? Any ideas? Doesn't it start a new thing since it, it a new sentence? It kind of does. It doesn't always start. It doesn't always start a whole new idea. But here, if we go back, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So, all of this. For, okay, it's another thing. For, to you, it has been granted on behalf of Christ. Not only to believe on him, it has been granted not... See, if you can leave this out, it's subordinate, okay? For to you, it has been granted not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. You could also say it like this. It's <laughs> kind of complicated, but... For to you, it has been granted to suffer for his sake, is what he's saying, right? It's been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe but also to suffer. So again, this is getting a little bit complicated, but you see why we're only doing these few verses right now, but you can start to see the structure of this passage. Just these few verses here, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's a, that's an admonition. That's a, that's a command. Why? Why should we make our conduct worthy of Christ? Because of the testimony with, with those who are our mentors, Paul here, our adversaries those who oppose us because it's been given this has been given to us by god to to live like this so you see the two parts here and you begin to work it out you can see the flow of the passage and the structure of the passage okay any what are your thoughts or questions as we as we do this i know i just threw like i dumped a bunch of stuff on you and i know this can be a little bit the best way to do it frankly is to just try it and and see what you come up with. And sometimes you'll see things um I wonder if I have a good example here. Uh old sermon studies. Um see if I can find a some of these here's one. Okay. Four, explanation, the grace, gift of God, genitive source, which means God is the one who gives the grace, brings salvation, has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying, here's our negative stance ungodliness, worldly lust. We should live. Here's our positive stance. severally righteously, and godly, when? In the present age. Looking, welcoming, blessed hope, and glorious appearing. Of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who Christ, see the underline, gave himself for us. Why? That he might redeem us from every law's deed, purify himself as a special people, zealous for good works. You see how this, as you do this, it like lays open the outline for you. Yeah. And it does the work. Now you can't do this as well with a story. Because these are, this is more for like epistolary literature or uh, parables sometimes like this, or Jesus are teaching uh, sermons, which is why I did a little bit for my, so for Joshua, as I'm preaching through Joshua, um, most of the time um, it's like this. I just have a bunch of notes, you know, uh, last week, worship wars, potential treachery. Here's my notes. It was, I didn't have a whole lot here. I had a bunch, there's, there's my outline that I started working on. Okay. And it ended up using commissioning, confusion, confession, clarification, calm. I actually had celebration at first, another C. I'm not big on alliteration, but I've, calm is actually was better description of what was going on. Okay. See, I don't see any, no block diagrams because it's a story. But this week, um, I'm block diagramming stuff because it's a sermon. And it, it works better that way. Yes, ma'am. Uh, a couple of years ago that it was suggested that uh, you write scripture and break it up, you know, when you see the punctuation. Because a lot of those things, was, those breaks you had were when there was punctuation Right. And um, I noticed that it really helped me to understand those passages, just like you're saying there. That. That's very true. Um, I would say if you were used to the King James, the punctuation of the King James is for for audible reading, is what it's for. Um it was not. It's like lots of semicolons and things. Um, it was. It was written that way for people to read from the pulpit, people to listen. It wasn't. Ri- it wasn't written that way for actual like literary punctuation. If I can put it that way. Uh, like our Bibles today are more. So are, you, like, are you saying that it affects um, this block diagram? I'm. Well? I'm not saying that it affects. I'm saying that you can actually. The, the all the times the pauses are more almost easier to see there's punctuation in places that show when you should pause in the King James in the, in the older King James, not the new King James, but the King James, if you read it and you look at those punctuations, like you're saying, and you actually do breaks there, you're almost right. Almost all the time. So when it comes to subordinating ideas, because they put in breaths, the punctuation marks are supposed to be pause marks kind of, or how much pause to give. It was almost, Written for us, not for private reading, but for public reading. If that makes sense, just just a little nuance. It's not really a big of a deal, but it's something that maybe will be helpful to you. Definitely look at it in your when you, in your um, in your passage. But but this is um, I'm going to have you turn in a block diagram. Now I have other uh, diagrams you can see uh, in your. Let's go back to your uh, student notebook. Um, uh, let's see here. What Kind of other things did we have? We had. Uh, I think it was under your worksheets. Oh, here's another block diagram. Yeah. On your worksheet, like page number three. Um, second Timothy four, one, I block diagram for you here. I didn't do a lot of the interconnected I things. I started doing that more and more myself. Um, you don't have to do it, but uh, block diagramming is, is I, I found that this is by far the best thing you can learn to studying a passage in depth. Um, grammatical diagrams are helpful. Um, I give you a grammatical diagram in there somewhere too. I think, right? Uh, there it is, page 31. I'm having you go all over the place. I have the same block diagram on page 31. Or something—it's—it's it's an observation. Twenty-nine. 29. I added a couple pages. So here is Deuteronomy six seven. Um, that can be helpful if you're really curious. Like I, I just think sometimes it can be really complicated because this was not originally written in English, and so the relationships between words sometimes is a little different. And so if you're going to block diagram, it's not always the most helpful, but it can be. I'm mean, sorry, if you're going to um, grammatically diagram, it may not be the most helpful, but it can be. Block diagramming, outlining, you see that there, but if you keep, you know. I find that that's that uh, block diagramming is more useful than grammatical diagramming in analyzing a text and finding out what it is. And again, why are we observing the text? We're observing it because we want to know what it says. So a couple other things you want to do while you're Studying your passage is, have you looked up any words that you didn't know yet? Have you tried that? Have you looked at, have you been reading your, yes, ma'am? What'd you look up? <laughs> Wait, can you tell us what they were? They weren't necessarily words I didn't know, but I looked up zeal. Just zeal, good. to looked up and righteousness. Yeah, yeah. Those are important words to look up. Uh, how How did you look it up? I looked in the Webster's 1828. Okay, that's, yep, you can do that for sure. Um... There is... uh, If we go back to Blue Letter Bible here... um, You're in Romans 8, right? Uh, Romans 10, that's right. So... Let's see if I can do this. I don't know if you can do it on here. I think you can. Um, Can I... Okay, let's say... Romans ten nine. Oh, look at that. Man, this is good stuff. All right. Um, it's going to give you every word in English and, the, infl- and the, the Greek over here. And if you don't know how to re- read Greek, this right here in the English, hati, uh, that's what that is. That's hati. All right. It's going to tell you. And I think. Strong's G, 3754, hati. Nice. Ha-ti. It's going to tell you how to say it. This is Blue Letter Bible. This is Blue Letter Bible, yeah. And that if you confess, look at this, homologeo or homologase. So what this is, in case you're wondering, this is the inflected. See the inflected, root, and transliterated. That's mean, that means how it is in the text, homologase. You can see it here, actually, which is to confess. Homologeo is what it's from. That's like the root. And then that's how you say it in English, homologo uh n or in with here n is really in or by is normally how it's translated su is you stromati stomati sorry your mouth so it gives you the greek so you can study and you can say oh look at this that's what this word is so let's take a look at homologase it's a phrase interesting can you look up this word i think you can click on that homologo tells you it's a verb from the compound of the base of Hamu and Lagos. Um, the King James translates this in the following manner. Confess, profess, promise, give thanks, confession is made and acknowledgeth. So these are some uses. Here's a Strong's definition. It's really good. Uh, yeah, so what I did was, I'll walk through my steps again. You might want to. Watch carefully, is that I clicked on the verse, Romans ten nine, and it expanded into this little thing here. It's called an interlinear, okay? Or the reverse interlinear follows the English. The interlinear follows the... I, th- I don't actually know which follows which. I don't use interlinear very much. But you just, um, you go then to the the letter here, or the word here. G means Greek. 3670 is the number. H is Hebrew. So if you're looking at the Old Testament, it'll say H, 1255 or whatever. You click on that word. Let's click on a different one. Uh, Believe. Pistuo. Um, You click on the word. Uh, It tells you, Pistuo, how to say it. Pistuo. From pistis, which is the word for faith, and it gives you the thing believed. I think it's true to be persuaded of, to give credit, to place confidence of a thing believed, and a reference, and to entrust in something. Okay, So you can read up about this word. The reason I say this is because, for example, sometimes words in English are different than the Greek word underneath it. And if you look up the definition of something, you might end up looking up the wrong thing. Uh, Also, if you're studying for words, you want to be careful with word studies that um, sometimes you'll get a very narrow definition. So let's get an example here. Uh, Let's use my uh, thing because I have more definitions here. Uh, Romans 10, uh, 9, Uh, confess, let's see, to promise, to assure, to be in common mind, to agree. Okay, so it also can be used, in 4th Maccabees, it was used with the idea of reaching a conclusion together. Oh, here we go. No, I'm trying to find a good... I'm gonna twist this, okay? That's what I'm doing. I'm looking for a bad a bad definition because I've uh we could do repent. Well, I, I, the reason I want to do this one, i could, we could do repent, but um here, here is here is a very narrow definition that applies in this text. Fourth Maccabees thirteen five. It means to reach a conclusion together. It means two people were sitting down, they reached a conclusion together. Homo legao, okay. But that's not, in this context, it means confess. It doesn't mean that we sat down with God and we reached the conclusion together. Exactly. So when you're looking at definitions, don't just pick the one that's most interesting to you. Pick the one that fits the best in the context. Mm -hmm. Because one time I think there was somebody who was preaching at one of the teens. I was working with them and they said something like, yeah, this word, I think it was something like... um, I forget, but it had, had some military context. He's like, this has a military context. And I was like, no, it doesn't. Why did you say that? And he's like, well, I looked it up and I looked it up and like, it is used in a context in a story in a military, but it doesn't normally have a military context. It just happened to be used in a story that dealt with the military in one setting. It would be like, if you said, I, I rode a horse. And then if you said, I rode in my car. Well, see, but the word road, has connotations of horseback riding. So you riding your car is similar to people riding horseback. No. It just means you rode. Yeah, that's the technical term, illegitimate identity transfer. It's when you assume the very particular definition of something and you import it onto another word. Um, Happens all the time, if you're not careful. Okay? Period perish. Yeah, you might think it means die eternally in hell. It might not. In some context, it means something else. Um, oh, there's, there's lots of examples of that. Right. Any, uh, we're basically out of time, but, but but let's look at your assignments for next week because um, we bas- I wanted to really talk a lot about observation today, which we did. We will continue down this as we talk about your exegesis work. So for next week, um, which is The 10th, I want you to identify transitions in your text. Okay, so changes in audience, mood, perspective, or language. Identify your main shifts, because normally that means you're going to have a major point at that mark. You don't want to have your main points like in the middle of a sentence. Your main point should be where a main break is. Okay. Use this information to help you divide the passage in a logical section or parts. I want you to mark repeated words, except for like the, on, about, Oh, maybe about, but like words that repeat. Um, identify keywords or theme words. Do your best here. Do what you can. Define any unfamiliar words, and bring your observations to class. Any questions? Yes, ma'am. As far as defining words and looking them up, like at the dictionary stuff. How many would you recommend doing? Just like. Uh, like not do articles or just like... Oh, definitely don't do articles. Yeah, you don't need to do articles. Just words that, words that be like you think are important. Like So if you're reading, like if you're reading uh, Romans ten nine and confess is probably an important word. Believe is probably an important word. Saved is probably an important word. You might want to look those up if you don't know what they mean. Or if you're like, I'd like to see what this means anything you put in at this part at this stage again remember what i told you about the pyramid the the more you put in here the easier it is as you build you do i do i when i preach um you know i preach every week sometimes twice a week i'm preaching twice this week and when you what you know the amount of work i put in in preparation is it, the observation part is is astronomical compared to the rest because that gives you enough information so that when you go to write your message and preach it, I, sometimes I'm preaching and I remember things from my study for observation. I don't even have it in my notes, but I know it because I, I I was in it, and that you can you can talk about things and it just comes off your it just rolls off the tongue because you've been in it. But if you if you cheat here if you don't spend the time, if you're like I already know this passage. Don't do that. You might think you know it. You might have memorized this passage. Still do it. You might find something. Who knows? You don't want to ever get up there, be talking, and then realize you're wrong (laughs) as you're speaking and have to be like, well, actually, that was incorrect. All right. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for a good class. I pray you'd help these um, people as they work. Give them your grace and help them to have your wisdom, the spirit to give them wisdom as they look at these things. We just want to praise you for your gift of the word and how powerful it is to change us. We thank you for the process of growing and changing the process of learning about you through it. Uh, through your scripture. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.